Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Live to see it, friends. You're listening to Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Fast Forward Radio is an audio production of the Speculist weblog, and you can find us online at speculist.com. That's S-P-E-C-U-L-I-S-T dot com. If you want to type a little more and put in blog there, you can do blog.speculist.com. You get straight to the good stuff that way. On this podcast and on the Speculist, we deal with emerging technologies, emerging possibilities. We talk about the future. We talk about what we think is going to be a bright future, a future that we're all going to want to live to see. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me, as always, is my co-blogger, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? Well, I'm super fantastic. Once again, I'm gonna. That's gonna be my stock answer, by the way. Super fantastic. Super fantastic every week. If 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 one if one week I I say something other than super fantastic. There will be a real story to tell. Right? Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I suppose it's possible, you know, you, if you just say fantastic, we'll know that, you know, something's bothering you real bad. Huh? That's right. I'm way down. <laughs> okay. All right. If I'm, if I'm just fantastic or just super, either either way. So. I guess so, yeah. So so um, how are you? You got uh, you got your uh, got your Valentine's Day planning all uh all, all in place. You know, this is uh, for us married guys. We've got to be very careful about these things. It creeps up on you faster than you think it's going to. Are you, uh, are you all set for the big day? Well, uh, you know, it's, uh, Valentine falls in the middle of the week this week, and if you've got a bunch of kids like, like Sherilyn and I have, um, it's a school night. And so, you know, you don't right. plan a big romantic date on uh, like a Thursday. I think it's Thursday this week, right? Um, I believe so. I will, you should know that, though. We really yeah, I, I ought to know, like, you know, uh, just off the top of my head, but um, yeah, I, I'm gonna. I'll bring her flowers. I'll, I'll do something like that. But we had we actually had our big date night last night, and uh, and so we had went out for some just a fantastic meal last night, and uh, just had a good time. And so, um, if you're ever in the Shreveport area, I'll check out. You need to check out the 1800 restaurant. They they cook things in an oven at 1800 degrees. Now, how they managed to do that and not burn it? Where uh, these steaks? I don't. I don't know. I have no clue. But I mean, it was like cutting through butter and uh, wonderful meal. Just, just so, I guess in and out really fast with an eighteen hundred degree. Yeah. I guess so, and um, and and managed to cook it all the way through and not charbroil it on the outside and 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 leave it raw on the inside. I don't know how, quite how they did it, but it was very good. So well, that sounds great, and it's called eighteen hundred in Shreveport. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Actually, well, it's exposure right across the river. What's that? I was going to say, if anyone uh, you know affiliated with the place is listening, we are giving you an ad here now. So, <laughs> That's right. It's you know, free, free local, ad. Uh, we can talk. Uh, once, well, it's free this time. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's this right. time it's free. But, 
Yeah, but we we had a great time, and so that's yeah. We and sort of that sort of takes the pressure off. I can I can just show up with uh, with some roses or something on on Thursday, and I'm 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 in the clear. Are you sure it takes the pressure off? You see, that's the other thing now. Yeah, you get you know it, it's it's a risky thing Valentine's Day, isn't it? It truly is. Now, one thing you got going for you with the kids, okay, with the the four boys at home is. Uh, Actually, a thing you have to do and a thing you've got going for you um, is that they've all got to get their mom something and have to do cards or something like that. But That's right. there's this whole cute Valentine's Day thing going on, too, which I think would also sort of take some of the pressure off you because they have to deliver, too, a little bit there. A little bit, but, you know, Dad's got to be involved in that. So, you know how that right. goes. So. <laughs> it's, a, it's a double-edged sword. You know, I was I was uh, uh, just just telling you before the, before the podcast started that uh, I had, uh, in fact – Figured out exactly what I was going to do for uh, the specky wife. I had had it all sorted out, had my plan ready to go, was about to execute, and then she came and told me what I would be doing for her for Valentine's Day. So, well, now uh, the pressure's off. You just do what she tells you to, and then all is good, right? Absolutely. I, you know what that what that uh, lacks in spontaneity, it more than makes up for in risk management. And hey, what do you know? We happen to be doing a program about risk this evening. So do you see how we <laughs> neatly. Uh, Neat, neatly brought that uh, brought that into play there. In fact, we were going to have uh, a friend from the Lifeboat Foundation on the program this evening, or at least we had been talking with uh, a couple of different folks from that organization about being on. And it uh, looks like we'll probably have someone on uh, from Lifeboat either next week or in the very near future. But since we had already been blogging about topics that are related to risk, and since we had already been sort of talking about it amongst ourselves leading up to the program. We thought we would go ahead and talk about risk this evening. That's right. And so um, I guess we should just uh, launch straight on into it. I, you know, the one that kind of caught my eye, Phil, was uh, the, the uh, article you wrote uh, at The Speculist about how EU is the EU, uh, the European Union, is banning genetically modified food. And I guess the the country that's really taking the lead on that is France, isn't it? Uh, that's right. Yeah, they, they have halted um, production of or allowing uh, genetically modified corn. And th- this, this is, to me, a really excellent example of, and, and I think we've got, we've got several of these, examples of issues where, uh, yeah, there, there definitely is an element of risk involved, and we need to become educated as to what that risk is, and we need to be able to make good decisions about uh, uh, how we mitigate against any any risk involved, where I feel that either through just common misconceptions or maybe some bad bad memes that get floated out there, or or maybe with a little bit of help from the media, a a very bad decision gets made. And and to to, to me, this is is a a case in point. We've we've got... um, the French government halting genetically modified corn. Uh, a number of other countries, I think, in Europe uh, are prepared to follow suit. Austria, Greece, and Hungary also highly suspicious of, dubious about, and ready to uh, put curbs in place around genetically modified corn. And, and this is after is, this is after they've done studies to show, uh, not not just in the United States but in Europe, done studies to show that it's perfectly safe. Um, and you know, I suppose it would be possible and quite easy, actually, to genetically modify corn to be, say, poisonous. Uh, you know, insert a little piece of DNA from some poisonous plant, you know, nightshade or something, into corn, and you'd have poisonous corn. But um, you know, 
number one, what would be the utility of that? Number two, uh, if somebody was trying to do that to hurt somebody, there's easier ways to kill people and uh, poison food supplies. And so, you know, that's that's just not going. You know, I I just don't see that as any big, any larger of a risk than just what food supply is anyway. Uh, but on the other hand, when you genetically modify corn, say to be uh, uh, pest pest resistant, then you can cut down the amount of uh, pesticides that you're poisoning the environment with. Uh, you can increase yields, and, uh, and you know that's a big thing for uh, for farmers everywhere. Um, Absolutely, and particularly in places like Africa, you know. Right. Well, you can you can modify corn so that it does not require or, or any crop. I mean, corn is the example we're talking about here. But you can modify crops such that they are uh, more conservative of water, that they don't uh, that that they don't require as much water in order to grow. And yeah, if you're in an arid country and you're just eking by trying to get crops to grow, that can make a huge difference. In fact. That can make all the difference between whether you're going to be able to grow a crop or not. And in fact, the, uh, the the quote I had from the news story that I was referring to when I wrote that blog post, it said, the European Food Safety Authority says genetically modified products do not constitute, constitute excuse me, a risk to human health or the environment. But some EU governments, and then including the suspects I just named, are wary of biotechnology. Yeah. So... Uh, this and, kind and, of irrational and, fear, right? It, it's know. not based on anything that can really put their finger on. Um, uh, Michael, uh, Michael Darling is in the chat room, and he said uh, he thinks the real problem is unintended consequences. I, and, and I, I think that there is some risk with a genetically modified food, as there would be with with other things. But I think the upside, it's my, this is my opinion, the upside of uh, of GM foods is, is so much greater than the potential downside, and so. Particularly, and here's, an, here's a good example. I, I read this. It was about a year ago. I wish I had the site for it. I, I may be able to dig it up and put it in the show notes. But there's an, there was this African country um, that's having trouble feeding their own people. And uh, anyway, they're, they're growing food and selling it to, uh, to France. Now, why they would want to sell what little food they have to France, I, I guess uh, this, that's what you get when you've got a top-down uh, uh, you know, uh, you got a dictator in charge. He wants the money. He does not interested in feeding his people. But right. the bad thing is, um, he's, you know, when France says, "Okay, no GM food," he tells his farmers, "Okay, you you know, you can't have you know GM crops at all because we don't want to disappoint our potential customers, and therefore, you know, you, you know, you have to just deal with the yields that you have." And so, you know, they instead of having uh, higher yields and, and perhaps the potential of feeding France and themselves, they'll just feed partly feed France and uh, and, and and you know, so you create a problem with uh, feeding your own people that way. So, well, and as if the first world hasn't put enough uh, burden and uh, hardship on third world farmers with the restrictions that we have on what what we will buy from them and what we won't to to, to then go out and tell them. Uh, and by the way, crops that might be viable for you. No, you can't do that either. Yeah, is is I mean it it almost becomes outrageous. And you know I see Michael's point about unintended consequences, and I think that there this is none of this is to say that there is not an element of risk. Right. Um, but but this ban. Let, let me let me give let me give an analogy because you know there are unintended consequences with a lot of things. Right. There right. are un, unintended consequences with uh, taking food supplements. A lot of people you know they take ginseng or ginkgo. Biloba, or uh, you know, there, there are a lot of different uh, things. If you go to Whole Foods or 
Uh, wild oats are one of those markets. I mean, it's just it's huge, the selection of those things. Now, there's no question that there can be adverse effects from taking some of these, taking them in the wrong combination, taking too many of them, uh, can lead to all kinds of ill effects. But this is the equivalent, okay, of saying, therefore, all food supplements are banned. Yeah. Right? That, that, that's what this is like. Which is, it's yeah, like, and, 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 you know, obviously, uh, if, you, if you do them correctly, then you can improve your health with them. And so, yeah, uh, it's, it's exactly right. You just have to know... Um, well, you can't get out of bed without risk, and so you, you you do your best to manage the risk and and take and take the risks that uh, have the greatest potential payoff. And I see GM modified foods as one of those one of those uh, risks that's worth taking for that reason. So that's just my personal opinion on that. Particularly since uh, we these studies have come out lately, like in the last month or so, uh, showing that there's just absolutely no problem with eating uh, GM foods. So. Right. right. Well, and in fact, I, I, you know, I saw one. Uh, this, the, I, I touch on the idea of cloned meat in the in the story. And in fact, um, at this point, the FDA has said cloned meat and milk are okay. But uh, no one seems to be r- rushing to uh, market to say, yeah, we're going to sell either of those two products. And I, and I think there's a lot of misperceptions around what cloning is. And I think there's just kind of a yuck factor associated with uh, with cloned meat. But people hear genetic or they hear cloned and they think, you know, I, if I eat genetically modified corn, I, you know, it, it's going to mess up my genes or something like that, right? That, that if, if, I eat a, if, if I eat meat from a cloned cow, um, you know, well, I, I really, I really can't imagine what people think is going to happen to them if they, if they do that. What the downside of that one is? But, I, but I got an email uh, not too long ago from a friend who uh, insists on sending me political stuff, and I, I, I think he knows where where I stand on most political stuff. But but he sends me things anyway, so God bless him, um, a great guy. But this was about um, sugar from genetically modified beets. And okay. just talking about, do you know they're selling us sugar from genetically modified beets? And I'm like, dude, I'm pretty sure by the time it's sugar, it's just like a molecule, right? It, <laughs> it has no idea what kind of a beet it came from at that point. But uh, Well, uh, you know, people will find things to be scared of. And, you know, and again, uh, it doesn't have to be rational. Uh, no, know. it it not only not only does it not have to be it uh, often seems to help if there's a little uh, if there's a little element of irrationality to uh, to the fear well we're talking about uh, various risks we're going to be talking a little bit more about existential risks this is fast forward radio on the blog talk radio network and in our second half hour we will be taking your calls you can dial us at 347-215-8972. We'll be starting on calls, as I said, in the second half of the show. So a couple of other of these areas of risk that uh, that, that we've looked at in recent blog posts, one of them was um, I think you may have seen the piece I did on uh, alternatives to recycling, to standard waste recycling. Yeah, I, I, was, I saw how Sweden is. Is it Sweden? Yeah. Uh, is that, was that the country? It is Sweden, yes. Okay, that I mean, they were requiring. I mean, this was onerous. I mean, they were requiring people. The people in Sweden apparently have to sort, sort and clean their garbage before they can throw it away. It has to be cleaned. Uh, plastics, glass, metal. I mean, all these, and they got like five bins that they keep in their garage or wherever, and then they have to haul them to the various recycling plants and everything. I think part of the problem there with their government is that they're not factoring in the cost of 
cleaning and sorting garbage that their citizens have to go through. And uh, uh, you're basically yeah, turning, right. you're they're, turning they're your population into, um, into waste management personnel, unpaid waste management personnel. Exactly and, right. They're taking they're taking it as a sunk cost or a fixed cost or uh, a cost that they don't have to consider because it's spread out and they can treat it as though it's free. But in fact, and this is the point that the uh, that, that the blogger made. This this got picked up on Dig and it was a hugely uh, a hugely well read piece on Dig. I, I, I was surprised because something critical of recycling isn't the sort of thing that usually makes it to the top of Dig. But <laughs> this this did and it uh, it stayed up there for quite a while. The the, the thing reminds. The process that they've got in place for recycling, what it reminds me of is it's the argument that you have with your wife about why do you have to wash the dishes before you put them in the dishwasher, okay? I mean, it's, it's, it's that on a society level, right? I mean, it's, it's okay, we're, we're, we're going to recycle materials, but first you have, to, you, know, you have to wash out your milk cartons before you can recycle them. It's absolutely astounding. So my point was, well, what if we... Um, rather than recycling all this stuff, if it's going to require that much labor, what if, what if we started pushing those kinds of materials in the direction of making uh, cellulosic ethanol out of them? What if we recycled them as fuel rather than, um, rather than reclaimed those particular products? And I think you actually followed up on that with, with another uh, related piece. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with your idea, uh, Phil, and I don't see any risk involved there. I mean, if, if we can turn our garbage into fuel, uh, that's there's nothing wrong with that. That's just you know that that's cool. There's um, nothing wrong with that. Now the 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 risk that's uh, associated with ethanol production that this came out like this last week. Apparently, it, you know, um, by using corn ethanol, um, what that does is it it pushes more corn production into places like Brazil. Of course, then they slash and burn rainforests, which releases a lot of carbon and. And they they did this study and they showed well, okay uh, you know because of this uh, when we when we use corn to make uh, uh, corn ethanol then actually more carbon ends up being released as a, you know uh, there's Michael's unintended consequence again um, coming coming home to roost so what well, what it, just generally there seem to be an awful lot of unintended consequences associated with making ethanol from corn. Yes. Does, well, does that seem to be the case. I mean, you, you see it uh, driving food prices out of control. Uh, you, you, you see it causing, you know, fluctuations in all these other markets that you weren't even thinking about or, or working on. Uh, so, so I would say that, uh, you know, corn ethanol is, is one of those um, maybe risky propositions where we really do have to look at the risk. That's right. We really do have to look at what we're um, what we're trading versus what what benefit we're getting from uh, from pursuing that. And, and I have a concern though about that, that news and the way that that study was. I mean, the study is, you know, I, I think that the study was probably well done. It was, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't doubt that what they show in the study was true. Um, it's just the way it's reported. It makes it sound like all ethanol is bad. You know, ethanol is a bad thing. Well, we don't have to make ethanol from you know, corn. We can we could make it from other things, switchgrass. We could make it from uh, the leftovers when after the corn is harvested. You know, the stalks and things like that. That's cellulosic, losic ethanol. Um, there, there's other things we can do, and as long as we're not using um, food itself or land that we grow food on, um, you know, uh, ethanol could be a good thing. 
and 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 it could be it could actually be carbon neutral because as plants grow, they're taking in carbon. And um, and then of course you know you, you release the carbon maybe when you're burning uh, the ethanol, but um, then that that carbon could then be reabsorbed as you're growing more um, as you're growing more plants. So uh, it sure. could actually be a carbon neutral process. And so I think uh, anyway, I, I I remain uh, positive on car- on ethanol because because of that. So. Oh, I'm big on ethanol too. I think it's 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 corn ethanol that I think might 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 not be worth the risk. And 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 it is one of the problems that that we've encountered on the blog is when you start talking about ethanol, you immediately get into these discussions. People want to talk about well, you know, corn and and they they, they want to talk about subsidies and and all this stuff. And you know, I, I'm ready to go on the record saying, yeah, I don't think any of that's a good idea. But it doesn't mean that uh, using ethanol as a fuel to uh, to power cars isn't a good idea. Those are actually two different issues. Um, and we don't want the risks associated with one to somehow become uh, carried over into discussion of the, the whole topic. That, so I guess that's that's really the danger there, is not that there aren't real risks. There, there definitely are real risks, with, uh, particularly with corn-based ethanol. But, but the question is, are we going to allow those risks drive the whole ethanol discussion, or are we going to talk about, you know, what, what makes sense in terms of can we reuse our garbage and even if we say okay well yeah let's let's not recycle our paper let's turn our paper into cellulosic ethanol and we can we can run our cars off that well there's still going to be there's still going to be issues because then the question becomes well now paper is a renewable resource but will we start to deplete the resource if we're not recycling paper but we're turning it into energy does that mean we have to cut down more trees is there an environmental impact there all of those different things have to be have to be looked at and i don't know frankly um, if it is known how big of an environmental impact the recycling of paper currently has, how much energy that takes. And, you know, it would be a very complex calculation to say, well, are we better off turning this into fuel or are we better off putting it back into the cycle and making paper out of it once again? But if if we're just stuck on subsidies and and issues that are completely unrelated to that, we'll never know. That's right. We've got to leave it open to try everything, and then uh, we can can make the – a determination later after some of these things are perfected what what's better you know got to try it all so. exactly so speaking of trying it all let's let's move on to another piece i wrote this week called the children of gilgamesh all right and i wanted to talk a whole lot about gilgamesh cuz i i for one thing i feel like we owe it to him um <laughs> after after all the time we've spent talking about beowulf <laughs> That's right. We didn't. You know, we did we, not even bring him up before. So <laughs> we owe some of these other epic heroes equal time, I think. But uh, what, what, now the thing I pointed about Gilgamesh, one of the little oddities in that epic poem, is that uh, uh, we are told that uh, he is two thirds divine and one third human, and. Um, that's an interesting parentage to have because most of us have two parents, and you got to kind of wonder, well, how did he come by a two-third, one-third uh, uh, ancestry? Yeah, I mean, even you know, there's no there's no mixing of the blood that can uh, you come up with a one-third of anything. You know, you, you're either you're you're always divisible by two. Uh, whatever exactly. you're, you know, whatever characteristic there is, it's divisible by two. Well, actually, I got into. I, I thought of a couple possible explanations for this. One is that maybe uh, a divine ancestor counts twice. So maybe. if, if yeah. you have a divine ancestor and a human ancestor, okay, then you're one third, two third. The other one I got thinking was work. Work with me on the math here. Okay, so you have two parents, you have four grandparents, eight great grandparents, sixteen great great grandparents, and then thirty-two. How many greats is that? Great 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 grandparents, right? 
Okay. Now, by the time you get there, let's say, just for argument's sake, that Gilgamesh had, you know, 20 divine great-great-great-grandparents and, and 12 human. He would have been roughly. Okay. If, <laughs> oh, that's cool. I can see that now. Okay, yeah. If they, if they were rounding, okay, but that it's a highly sophisticated lineage. However, most people have read that to mean that, that there was something odd in in Gilgamesh's parentage, and I was completely reminded of that when I read this story about British scientists who are uh, creating human embryos that uh, contain the DNA from two women and a man. So in effect, you've got a human embryo with three parents. Okay? Right. This is, this is the, the, the Gilgamesh effect here. Now, the scientists who are doing this, they're, they're very clear in saying, look, we're not trying to alter genes. Um, all we're trying to do is swap out a proportion of some bad ones for some good ones. So they're trying to establish that you can correct genetic problems by, by taking um, what, would, what would normally be thought of as an embryo with two parents and swapping in a little bit of uh, genetic information from a third party just to, just to correct a problem. However, this is designer. Ba- this is the uh, this is basically designer babies. I mean, this is the the science that would bring us that, isn't it? That that is exactly what this is. Yeah. And and you know the um, desire to to replace those problem traits is a good one. Yeah. It's one I'm sure we would all agree with. But once again, uh, Michael's uh, unintended consequences echo here because. Uh, if you can if you can produce uh, an embryo with three parents, you can do one with you know ten or a hundred or any number that that you can imagine. You, you can mix and match genetic traits from any number of contributing persons to to, to provide the genetic makeup of, of of this individual. And the question is, um, what are the risks associated with that? First off, you know what what kinds of problems might develop from uh, these different traits being mixed. And also, you know, I I think the other one you have to look at is what are the social implications of something like that? Well, I think, you know, one one problem with the crops that we have uh, is that they're homogenous now. Um, Right. And and if a disease comes along, it could potentially wipe out all of, you know, our wheat or something because we only have like one strain of wheat that we've chosen to use. What if, I mean, we... We make ourselves more homogenous as a race. You know, I mean, we decide, okay, we nobody wants to be fat, so let's eliminate that. We want to eliminate this trait and that trait, and and so on and so forth. And pretty soon, we're all running around looking exactly the same, and you know, having all the same traits. Um, you know, could that potentially lead to a more homogenous population that would be more susceptible to disease or or, or some problems like that? Are, and, and that's you know that's one thing, and another thing is that a society that we would really want. I, I don't think that it's something really that uh, that much to worry about because I, you know, I, I, I lay out the argument and then I'm going to shoot it down because I think that if uh, once we designer babies are possible, I think that people will become more different instead of more the same. I think uh, it, seem, it seems people to me will push that off in different the, directions. Right. If 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 I. If a, a newborn baby has the potential of having a dozen parents rather than two, it seems that if anything, uh, people are going to become a lot more different rather than uh, become a lot more the same. But I guess the point is that a lot of the same tra- traits are going to be showing up over and over again. And uh, w- one of the points that uh, the, that I made in the uh, in the blog post was, well, okay, so if a baby has a dozen parents, 
you know, what are the responsibilities of each of those 12 people towards <laughs> that child? You know what I mean? And, and who does that child view, uh, you know, not just uh, in a legal sense, but in a social sense, in a biological sense? In a, I mean, so many questions arise around what it would mean for people to reproduce in this way that uh, well, I, I would don't think, have any way of answering them. I, I would think that you'd basically you'd have two parents as always. Okay, this right. is just a guess. Okay, you have two parents as always that are completely responsible for the child, but uh, then you know you, you go in instead of reproducing the good old fashioned way, you, uh, every baby is a test tube baby, and uh, the the baby is pretty much you know ninety five percent the product of mom and dad, but let's throw in a little uh, I don't know Arnold Schwarzenegger's ability to put on muscle mass. Let's throw in a little. Um, a little genius from Stephen Hawking, let's say. I'll make sure not to throw in the disease that he's suffering from, you know. Um, and, it, right. on, and, you know, in other words, gather traits from various people and then throw it in along with the, 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 uh, the obviously, the normal traits of mom and dad. I think that that's where designer babies would go, but that's just, again, obviously a guess. I think that's where it would start, but where it would go, I think, is anybody's guess. I, I, I think that's. Uh, you could, I suppose, you could actually have all kinds of weird family situations where you know three people go together to make a third, a third, a third baby. Basically, who knows? That could be right. Strange. You know, and and you know, it's 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 complicated enough in a world where uh, families splinter and and people don't know who's related to whom. I mean, if 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 uh, you throw into the mix there that a person could have an indeterminate number of parents. Uh, you, you could be meeting complete strangers all the time who were actually various, you know, uh, a second cousin or, uh, you know, a, a half-sibling, or you, you wouldn't even know what, for sure. I mean, it's, it seems like there are, there, there are risks that way that uh, people might almost have to start carrying around a pedigree just to make sure that they weren't um, marrying the wrong person. Of course, I guess it wouldn't matter if once they got married, their decision was also to just pick a whole bunch of different genetic material and make a kid that way. But it's... Uh, it's a very uh, not Orwellian. It's the other guy, Brave New World. Uh, Aldous, Aldous Huxley is that right? Huxley, kind yeah. of a, yeah view of the future, and it's it's kind of hard to get your head around. At, at any rate, I think there there are definitely risks associated uh, that that we haven't identified yet that that will definitely come to the fore as uh, as we get closer on uh, these kinds of technologies being developed. This is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Phil Bowermaster and Stephen Gordon, we're talking about different kinds of risk. And uh, at this point, Stephen, I want to go ahead and open up the phone lines if uh, anyone wants to call in and talk to us about risk. That number is 347-215-8972. And while we're looking to see if anyone calls in, let's uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, – we've been talking about risks that are iffy or so-so, that there's some risk, but maybe people are – exaggerating the risk or maybe they're misunderstanding the risk. Let's talk about a completely different kind, which is what we would have gotten into tonight had our friends from Lifeboat Foundation been on, existential risk. These and are the biggest risks of all. And right. These are the biggies. Yeah. Obviously, if you know one of these concerns comes to pass, then uh, we're either out of here or we're or we're, you know, we face a, a, such a setback that might, perhaps civilization could come to an end. So Anyway, yeah, the, the, here are the big ones, and uh, I mean, I, you know, I, just looking through the kind of risks that these guys are concerned about, and this is the Lifeboat uh, Foundation. That you know, the ones that they are concerned about are things like nuclear war, 
some biotechnological risk like uh, engineering a, a virus or something like that. I mean, those are, these are the big things that could wipe us out. So. Absolutely, and and we should we should point out when we talk about existential risk, we're talking about uh, at a societal or civilizational or species or even planet level existential risk because there there are different kinds of existential risk. It was interesting. I was looking at the Wikipedia article on this subject where I always begin looking at topics. Wikipedia is a great place to start, is my view on Wikipedia, and uh, there was a neat chart there. Uh, reminded me a little bit of some of the stuff I've done on practical time travel, where you talk about your spheres of influence, and you talk about you know what your future will be versus what the future of your immediate community will be versus the future of you know the entire planet. And risk works the same way. So you can have uh, those risks that apply uh, directly to you, those that apply to your community, and then those that apply to the whole planet or to all of uh, all of humanity. Um, and, and then there's the severity of the risk. So, you know, uh, a, a risk that that applies to me is that I might be late for work tomorrow, and that's just me, and that's not an existential risk. On the other hand, uh, if I'm commuting, um, I, I actually face a level of existential risk every time I get out on the highway. True. Because yeah. as an individual, but, that, but that, that's not a community-wide existential risk because there's there's basically no chance that everyone in your community is going to be involved in a fatal car accident. That's right. That that would be uh, an existential risk that applies to the community as a whole, but only to individuals within within the community as a whole. That's exactly right. right. Whereas what we're talking about now is all the way over in the far upper right hand corner of that chart, and we're talking about the you know absolutely destructive risks that apply to the entire human community, as it were. And and as you mentioned, nuclear risk is one of those, biotechnological risk is another, uh, nanotechnology and artificial intelligence. These are the four that uh, Michael Nisimov listed on his blog, and, and I think as, as good categories for, um, uh, for, for, for talking about these risks, those are probably a good way to start. It's a slightly different breakdown than what we see from Bill Joy in the article that he did uh, in Wired a few years back. Uh, called The Future Doesn't Need Us, which you and I have talked about before. He right. had it down to three categories, and those are the three categories that um, Kurzweil likes to likes to use, and those are essentially uh, GNR, genetics, nanotech, and robotics. Robotics meaning the artificial intelligence, but uh, Michael has added nuclear risk, which I think is uh, very much on point to, uh, uh, to, to be looking at that uh, as, as a potential existential risk. It might not necessarily um, be existential for all of human civilization, but it certainly is for uh, individual nation states and for our economy as we know it and basically for our, our world as we know it. Right. The, the other three, I think, uh, biotechnology, nanotech, and artificial intelligence, those all can pose threats to the very level of civilization, right? Could human civilization survive? So, now does this make me a hypocrite, Stephen? I'll put it to you, that, that I would list biotechnology as a huge existential risk for humanity, and yet still I'm miffed with the EU for banning genetically modified corn. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, biotech is, uh, is not just one thing, obviously. Uh, genetically modified foods is just uh, one little part of what biotech is. Um, biotech is also the potential of putting together a virus that would kill us all. And, uh, you know, the, the scary thing about that is that, you know, let's say, let's say uh, a weapons of mass destruction. Uh, 
in the past it was always had to be a state actor. You know, you had to in order to build a, uh, a nuclear bomb, you need ma- huge facilities. You need to spend tons and tons of money. You have to have brilliant, brilliant people, and a lot of them, um, to build uh, build your bomb. And uh, that was, uh, you know, and even then, a, a nuclear bomb is less scary than what a single individual working in a trailer house somewhere could put together if they had the right equipment and the right know-how. Um, exactly. And so... Um, and you know, you, you know, how do you spot that person? The troubled genius that uh, you know hides out in the back forty somewhere, put, and puts together something that could potentially kill a lot of people, if not all of us. So, um, you know, that's the, yes, I, I completely agree. That that's that's the big one. I, it's it, and you know, I think the risk of this world coming to an end in a in a nuclear holocaust has diminished. Um, since you know, basically the Cold War ended, I think perhaps the risk of a uh, regional nuclear war may have increased. But a regional nuclear war doesn't wipe us all out. Um, it may wipe out a few cities, but um, uh, that's not the same as, a, as, as a, a nuclear holocaust that kills everybody. So I think that the, the, that risk has actually gone down, but the risk of, uh, of uh, putting together a, a bug to kill us all that's actually gone up. I, I've heard it put this way that the uh, every year, you know, there's, um, you know, we we talk about accelerating change. Well, uh, the downside of that is that every year the uh, the amount of uh, the, the IQ level of someone uh, it, that it would take to wipe out the world goes down too. So. Uh, yeah, that's uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky has stated that. Is, uh, yeah. What is it? It's the law of accelerating change for mad scientists or something like that? I don't know, but he, he, he said it a lot a lot more concisely than that. But, uh, yeah, um, that's... But that's, that's exactly right. The, the, the point is, with, with all of these um, technologies, with, with the exception of nuclear, I'll, I'll come back to nuclear, but with, with biotech, nanotech, and, and artificial intelligence, um, it's this is the dark, scary side of an army of Davids. This is a tremendous power pushed down into the hands of individuals. And in fact, to the extent that nuclear risk is still a fairly big risk, it's, it has, I think, more to do with that, more with smaller groups and individuals uh, getting their hands on that uh, capability and using it than uh, the traditional nuclear risk that guys like us grew up with, which was huge state actors who had had the capacity to blow each other up many times over launching the all-out global thermonuclear war that, that wiped out civilization. I think the, the greater nuclear risk now is that uh, nuclear uh, destruction may have been democratized to some extent, and, and, and you have individuals who can, can cause tremendous damage with that. Certainly with all the rest of those, that's, that's the real risk is that um, – is that someone gets a hold of, of biotechnology, uh, biotechnological capability um, that uh, makes it possible for them to, you know, unleash this designer virus, or that someone working on a completely legitimate problem with nanotech builds the accidentally builds the gray goo machine, right? The, the, the machine that <laughs> then <laughs> turns around and eats the world. Yeah. And I've I've heard it uh, jokingly said. Uh, but, I, but I don't know if it's entirely a joke that um, where artificial intelligence might well arise is from the financial markets because we now have the situation where currently um, trading is done to a large extent by algorithms. And we've got these very smart people, these quants who write these algorithms, and they're looking for 
tiny advantages over each other in terms of what goes into my algorithm that's going to make me make a purchase a little faster, a little more aggressively, with a little bit more insight than, than yours does. So there's this kind of um, uh, arms race going on between the financial uh, services firms uh, to, to build these, these, these better and better algorithms. Eventually, we won't have the quants doing it. Eventually, we will have software writing those algorithms. And when that happens, um, you've got the exact scenario for um, a, a continuously improving intelligent agent in place that could very well lead to some form of artificial general intelligence. And you have to think that something built in uh, to serve such an aggressive market and to perform such a competitive feat uh, might not be terribly friendly uh, or, or, or terribly empathetic or concerned about what we think of as, as the major concerns of humanity if, if it were to come into, come into being. Wow. You know, I, uh, uh, a while back I wrote a post uh, called The Big Risk, and, I, and in it I, I listed off the ten risks that uh, had been published by a newspaper, The Guardian, and, uh, and the ten risks that the Guardian mentioned was climate change, telomere erosion, viral pandemic, terrorism, nuclear war, meteorite impact, robot takeover, which AI basically, unfriendly AI, cosmic ray blast, supervolcano, and artificial black hole. Um, I went through and just basically said, okay, uh, here, here's the upsides and downsides of it. And the one I, I, uh, that I came away saying the biggest risk of, the, of all of these is a robot takeover, or basically uh, unfriendly AI. Um, but, you know, I, I think viral pandemic is probably a close second. So, at any rate, it, you know, I, I hate to be uh, – we're kind of getting into a pessimistic uh, show here, Phil. Well, you know, we're not pessimistic because, once again, coming up very soon, we're going to have our friends from the Lifeboat Foundation. <laughs> They're going to tell us what we can do to yeah. Well, what can we do to actually uh, make, this, uh, make sure this doesn't happen, huh? Right, and meanwhile, I would suggest that anyone who is concerned about these things, if, if, you're, if you're worried about uh, nanotechnological risk, obviously you want to get involved with uh, the work of Foresight Nanotech or uh, the Center for Responsible Nanotechnology. Uh, if you're concerned about the AI risk, there's the uh, Singularity Institute for Artificial Intelligence. They're working specifically on uh, addressing, uh, addressing this problem, making sure that the first AI that shows up is a friendly AI. And, of course, the Lifeboat Foundation itself which is dedicated to addressing all of these risks. And they're looking at um, not just the ones we've listed here, but some of those that you were talking about. They, you know, they're tracking meteor impacts. And um, Now, telomere, telomere erosion is more of an individual threat, is it not, than a uh, – or am I misunderstanding that one? Well, telomere erosion basically says that, uh, you know, even a, they're saying that this type of telomere erosion would actually be species-wide. But, you know, I've never – you know, I've never heard of a, a species being wiped out because the, there's some there's some you know time limit on species. Um, well, of course you've never heard of it because none of them were here to tell the story. Well, well, think about it this, this way: go. if if we had turtle, if it was a problem, we wouldn't have turtles because turtles have been around forever, right? We wouldn't have I don't know alligators or, or some some of these species that have been with us since you know the time of the dinosaurs. Those species, if there was a really a time limit on a species, then you know why are those why are those species still around? So I, I didn't put any credence in that. Uh, that was one that I basically threw out immediately, 
and said, "Okay, here's here, here's the uh, here's the other nine that are listed here." You know, are these oh, okay? Really well, certainly if it applies to all species, then yeah, you would think we've got at least as long as mosquitoes. Right. And we know they've been around for I don't know hundreds of millions of years, right? So yeah. So I didn't I didn't put any stock. Don't need that. to worry about that. But but maybe it applies to some species more rapidly than others, or something like that. But anyway. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just that one caught my attention because uh, I am familiar with that being an issue related to aging, and obviously it leads to. Uh, existential risk on the most personal and, you know, self-centered of levels, which is, you know, it's one of the reasons that we get older and it's one of the reasons that ultimately die. So there is an existential risk associated with telomere erosion. I just, I didn't see Well, we're not going to all die at once. Uh, You know. Right. (laughs) The children, (laughs) our children will uh, survive us uh, more than likely. So that's, yeah, exactly. I see telomere erosion as a a personal risk and not a risk to the entire species. So I, I chunked that one. Yeah, okay, good. Well, we'll stop worrying about that one, and uh, hopefully next week or in the very near future, we'll have our friends uh, with us from Lifeboat, and they'll talk to us about what we can uh, what we can expect to see in place uh, addressing those and what people can do to get involved uh, in, in terms of uh, mitigating some of these risks because there, there are real risks, and, and they definitely do need to be looked at. This is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. All right, Stephen, why don't we shift gears a little bit and uh, talk about some maybe less serious and less threatening topics. I think uh, you had kind of a fun one about, uh, uh, about giant robots that we, that, that we could – giant military robots. Why don't you talk to us about well, that? Well, actually, the topic was things we would have if, it, if things weren't so expensive. Uh, if, if it wasn't so expensive, uh, uh, what kind of uh, great science fiction things would we have? Well – you know, one of the things it listed was, um, you know, giant robots like the Gundam, or is that is that what you call them? Uh, uh, Gundam, yeah. Gundam, yeah. Uh, robots like, uh, you know, it's in the Japanese anime. There are so many things that are science fiction tropes that we we could have that would be possible, uh, but you know, we just don't do it because it's so expensive. Uh, moon base is still in the future. I think we will live to see that, Phil, and but. We would have had it already, uh, probably in the mid '70s. Had uh, it, not, it, you know, had money been no option, we could have had it. Um, you know, orbital hotels, things like that. Um, does, hey, by the way, does Mars Colony show up on that list by any chance? Yes, I, I, it, tr- a manned mission to Mars, I think, is uh, I believe is on the list. Because not just a manned mission, but a established settlement there, we we could have had, and it wouldn't have cost as much if people had just listened to our friend Robert Zubrin, who is yeah, he had, he's got a pretty good idea on on how to get there, and to and to do it on the cheap, which you basically have to do when you're talking about something like that. I mean, there's you know right, because otherwise we're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars if you if you go the conventional method and. Getting back to it, that's that's why we wouldn't have had it. Now let's talk about these. Let's let's talk about these uh, Gundam uh, Mecha uh, robots. What would you be able to do with one of these? It looks like uh, from the picture, these guys stand about. Oh, I'm going to say 60 feet tall. Is that right? And, yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking basically a, a mechanized Godzilla. Uh, uh, you know, uh, that would be obviously uh, a, a a great thing to have with you on your side if you were going to war. Um, you know uh the the bible story of david and goliath you know they the whole the whole uh you know philistine army is, uh, hangs back and they just send out this big giant 
uh, and it, you know to completely demoralize the other side. Well, imagine if you had this you know sixty foot tall robot. I mean, it, it, to, to a certain extent, that would just compl- uh, you know your your enemy would just probably lay down in their arms. Uh, uh, and, and you know, nego- try to negotiate for surrender if you start showing up with sixty foot tall robots, or they uh, found out that you've built one and they've now got an eighty foot robot. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this, yeah. this, this is this is where the arms race really starts to take off in a fun way. I mean, at least fun in an entertaining way to watch. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want to be involved in this, but uh, <laughs> no, you wouldn't want you to would, be anywhere near this. You, you wouldn't want to be a soldier on the ground that's getting stomped by one of these things. <laughs> No, uh, you want a robotic camera crew recording the whole thing and and to watch it later. That's yeah, really that's right. Well, uh, you know the uh, the cost uh, that was put in this article uh, seven hundred and twenty five million dollars per robot is what they would estimate it would cost. You know, I don't know how they necessarily got it came to that, but you know, obviously it'd be great to have in warfare. Um, apparently, uh, some of the. Uh, um, Japanese comic books, all you know that that have these uh, Gundam robots in them. Uh, they also show them being used uh, for more pe- peaceful purposes, you know, building skyscrapers and things like that. So why, sure, search you know, and rescue. Was... It seems like there's a lot of great stuff you can do um, oh, yeah. with 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 them once once you had them. All kind. Of, I, I think there could be a tremendous uh, peacetime dividend related to building the Gundam Mecca if we would, you know, if we would if we build an army of them, establish our military dominance over the entire world and then let them uh, well, I guess they would basically take over at that point. Never mind. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Maybe but, maybe we don't do that. I don't know. But, I, I, that whole establishing our military dominance was a bad idea too. I was just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but the uh the thing I remember reading in that article was that uh, some commenter noted that at 725 million, one of these would actually cost you less than a B1 bomber. Yeah, so I mean, so it, just how, you know, and, it and, sounds outrageously expensive, but hey, you know, we're spending that much on military hardware anyway, and uh, it's maybe, maybe just have a couple of them just to just to completely, uh, you know, uh, again demoralize the enemy. Yeah, yeah, or just to walk down the street in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. I mean, it's just an <laughs> yeah. awesome thing to have. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, any, anything else that was on the list that. Uh, that you want to make note of? Well, something that wasn't on the list uh, that that ought to, uh, should have been uh, was uh, the Project Orion. You remember that? That was the that was yes. the project that was a nuclear powered uh, spaceship that we never got. Uh, that we basically cut that and just went, you know, uh, put all of our eggs in the rocket basket, basically, so we could get to the moon as quickly as possible. But Project Orion, uh, they had as their slogan. You know Saturn by 1970. Wow! And you know the idea was you know we're going to uh, launch this thing, and this is not a this is not a spaceship like any that we've ever launched before. It's not you know small. It's not cramped. It's a big, huge battleship of a spaceship that would be launched on a plume of nuclear warheads, basically. You know, boom, boom, right. boom, and boom, boom. Fact, boom. I, I, I the the um, application that I've remember reading about for Orion was not so much uh, even interplanetary travel within our solar system, but but where it would really uh, start to come into its own would be as the sort of rudimentary starship, that that by firing enough of these, I remember Carl Sagan's description of this in the book Cosmos, he, he talks about you start fire, firing these uh, nuclear bombs in rapid succession, and eventually what you've got is kind of like the putt, 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 as he described it, of a motorcycle engine, and that's going to push that spaceship out into interstellar space, and eventually, if I remember correctly, 
the Orion spacecraft would get you up to about 10% of light speed. So it's not, it's you know, it's no Starship Enterprise, but that that is at least a that would be a 40 year uh, journey, I guess, to the local uh, to the next star. To the nearest star. Yeah. Yeah. So it needs to be a huge ship, obviously, uh, to do that. But yeah, that's uh, uh, and and so and. and you know, if you had had a, if we had put our money into that, perhaps we could have already have been uh, at least exploring the solar system by now. So, um, it's, mm. you know, that but that's a sh- that's a shame, and I, I wish we had, uh, to some, you know, I wish we had put some more money into that and pursued that a little bit more. But yeah, that should have been on the list. Yeah, that would have been a good one. And for one thing, because I would really like to have seen the estimate for how much that would have cost. Yeah. Uh, that, that would have been that would have been very interesting. Well, now let's talk about. Uh, did you see this Discover Magazine article? Twenty things you didn't know about science fiction. No. Um, uh, this 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 was uh, this was good fun. Uh, Discover Magazine. They and, and then the title kind of cutesy. It said twenty things you didn't know about, and then dot 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 science fiction. So you think, oh, you're going to get some science topic, but instead uh, they're 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 giving us uh, science fiction. And I have to say that I read through the list. And I knew most of them, and some of them that uh, that I didn't know, I would uh, I would take issue with. For yeah. example, number one, arguably, see right off, they're giving me a they're giving, they're giving me you an out right there. there. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. <laughs> arguably, the inspiration for much science fiction traces back to classical mythology. Think of it: Earthlings abducted by beings from the sky, humans morphing into strange creatures, and events that defy the laws of nature. Now, I would say that fantasy derives from classical mythology, but that in fact um, science fiction is a uh, uh, when when it was developed, it was a new thing, and that it did, it did not come from classical mythology. And definitely, there's overlaps between fantasy and science fiction. Well, I kind of take the other side on that, Phil. Okay. And the reason is, I, I think. Arguably, the first uh, arguably, no, <laughs> arguably, arguably the first science fiction story is what Frankenstein. I would say that. Okay. Yes. All right. All right. And oh, uh, subtitle the modern subtitle the modern Prometheus. Right. Wow. Hmm. Oh, you got me, man. Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. I, and so, anyway. So I maybe corrected. <laughs> maybe uh, science fiction owes a lot to classical mythology. So arguably, I would say it does. <laughs> That's right. Anything on the list that uh, got your attention? Well, taking a look here. Um, no. Another one that that I was amused by was number fifteen. Sexual liberation plays a big role in Heinlein's books which really puts the waterbed thing into perspective. Oh, I, I should have gotten back to the earlier one. Uh, Robert A. Heinlein actually uh, yeah, outlined had... the first model of a working waterbed in, uh, I think it was in Stranger in a Strange Land. There's a description of a waterbed. And, uh, Still waiting for a waterbed that doesn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> I hate waterbeds, man. I, I, you know, if you can get them to... To be warm, and you know, and and if you, as long if you get the temperature thing right, you still got the, you know, uh, your 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 wife getting out of bed, and you know, you're rocking in the middle of the night and waking up and all that. It's water beds are terrible. That's and that feeling that you're sinking, that strange. Oh, I'm drowning. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Again, this is a this is my personal opinion. Maybe maybe there are people out there that love them, but no. Uh. But uh, well, you know, uh, uh, callers. Once again, we are taking your calls and, <laughs> and argue the, the merits of the waterbed. We do have a few more a, a few more minutes here. Now, another one that uh, that got my attention was uh, about uh, Isaac Asimov. And now I'm not 
Now I'm not seeing the one that I wanted to talk about, Isaac Asimov. Oh, rats. Um, anyway, there was, there was one on there about Isaac Asimov that I wanted to... Uh, oh, here it is. Not to be outdone, science fiction legend Isaac Asimov wrote about interstellar space flight but refused to board an airplane. And uh, the, the, he never he never flew in his life. Would not would not fly. Wow. Um, I, I know that he traveled to Europe, so he must have he must have taken like a uh, boat. A boat, yeah. yeah. Um, and this follows on Ray Bradbury, who uh, would never even drive a car. Uh, would have nothing to do with computers or ATMs, and uh, won't <laughs> won't drive a car. It's really amazing these guys with these astounding. Who is the uh, uh, author of Neuromancer? We. Um, Oh come on! Uh, oh, well, you mean, um, yeah, me too. Now, now, um, well, yeah, the, yeah, that guy, that guy. Um, yes, um, he uh, for for years, I think, uh, and until very very recently, uh, he didn't own a computer. I mean, he had all these ideas of what computers could do and where it could go, but he was bored by the 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 brick that was sitting on your desk, you know. That's amazing. That, that's William Gibson. Gibson William course, Gibson. Is the name. Yeah. William Gibson is the is the name. Well, in fact, I remember reading uh, an article uh, written by Isaac Asimov on the first computer that he ever used, and uh, it was it was for um, I think it was for I don't know Reader's Digest or uh, some popular interest magazine, and he was talking about you know getting the hang of the keyboard and all that kind of thing, and and this was my this was my addition to the to the list of little known facts about. Uh, about science fiction is that Isaac Asimov, in addition to the fact that uh, he didn't like to fly, he never learned touch typing. And the man wrote more than 300 books using uh, what he would have described as two-finger typing, what a lot of people call the hunt and peck method. So imagine that, 300 books, just kind of pecking them Ooh, how, That's a slow way to go. But, you know, I've seen it some, a pretty fast hunt, hunt and peck guys. Um, I've actually read that the fastest typist in the world, who who can type much faster than the fastest uh, touch typist, use that method. I've never seen that demonstrated. That I, I don't know how that could be possible. That. How can someone beat me with two fingers when I'm using ten? I don't know. Or at least I, I, eight. I've heard it. Yeah. I, it might have something to do with the fact that that. Uh, it could be that you can go a lot faster with those two fingers than you can with you know the other fingers are even at their fastest maybe or not nearly as fast as those. I don't know, but. Uh, but uh, I, I mention this because I am going to come out of the closet here. Am actually a uh, two-finger typist myself. Have never learned to hunt and peck. Oh I've my! Never learned to touch typing. I I, I use the you same have written method. a lot at the speculist with two fingers, my friend. That's right. The same method that Isaac Asimov used for those three hundred plus books he wrote. So it's wow. out now. Let you know. He's a he was a prolific writer, and are uh, so you you are as well. He's he's my cover for the fact that I never learned touch typing. I can say, yeah, well, Isaac Asimov, so so there. And you're you're pretty fast. I, I know that because uh, you know, uh, do, you know, uh, uh, text chatting back and forth. Uh, you're you're you know, you type pretty quickly. Well, two fingers, that, you know, so. I, I do what I can. And there yeah. have been times when the uh, story would break, and we'd both put a blog post up on the same subject at the same time. Sometimes you'd be first. Sometimes I'd be first. So I think we're. Just about evenly matched, although the word counts wouldn't necessarily be the same. So <laughs> I, I guess that's not scientific. Okay, one other was number six. Are, are you familiar with this? Serious science fiction heads say sci-fi carries schlocky B-movie connotations. Many prefer the abbreviation SF. Were you Serious science with that? fiction heads say sci-fi carries schlocky B-movie connotations. They prefer SF. Okay. Um, 
whatever. Because <laughs> I know that you use the term sci-fi. All the time. I don't use the term sci-fi. And uh, I've, I've, I've often wondered if that's actually an old school kind of a thing. I look at that and I go, well, yeah, but isn't that more like in the 70s people said that? And that's Maybe. not really an issue today. Well, it's the difference between trekker and trekkie, I guess. Uh, it could it could be related to that as well. Well, <laughs> with with that in mind, why don't we talk about what music we got going on this evening? Oh, okay. Um, well, let's see. Let me get to where I'm looking at it here. Tonight we have got uh, uh, Scott Andrew, More Good Days, uh, and and we're glad and, and I'm glad it's an upbeat song th- uh, this evening. After talking about some things for a little yeah, bit, after talking all that risk, let's let's uh, talk about risk. Let's talk about days. more good days than bad days. So. That's our that's our music tonight. We we have uh, links to uh, this music and all the topics we're talking about are in our show notes. Um, you can find that at the Speculus www.blog.speculus.com. And uh, so it's been fun tonight, Phil. It has been a pleasure as always. Thanks so much for uh, spending the time with me, Stephen, and uh, for all of those of you listening. Thank you. We look forward to being with you once again on the next Fast Forward Radio. Good night. Songs. Rain is coming down over me. You tell me you could do with a bit more time, but I think that you'd rather be free. See, I heard you bend down, no one comes around, and not too many hours to spare. So come on, let me take you away from here. We'll burn for the horizon, let it be a last souvenir. So turn the bed down, take the needle out. Let me help you into your shoes Only you can say how your story ends You're the only one who can choose And now we're long gone on the 101 And we got nothing better to do Think about the last time you felt this high With the sun in the sky and the vibe I'm sending to you More good days than bad days It's good to be on your own More good days than bad days you don't have to go it alone Now on the black top at the Mission Rock We've got no destination in mind Put your arm around me as I pull you close Just pick a new direction and drive And pay the last toll as the credits roll As another day comes to an end let it wrap you in a blanket of desert sky With the light in your eyes, let me see you shine once again Most good days and bad days Yeah, it's good to be on your own Most good days and bad days But you don't have to go it alone Someone else, maybe someone else will be me. And 
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.